Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Scott Miller, welcome to The Mentor. Mark, thanks for the spotlight and the platform. Delighted to be here today. Here I am talking to the author of lots of stuff, but the author of a book called The Ultimate Guide to Great Mentorship, and which is what I want to talk to you about today. And, you know, I also want to talk to you about some of the people you've interviewed in your own podcast, which I hope to get on to one day with you. What are you waiting for? I don't know, sure. Just uh, I've been putting a queue. Well, I control the queue, so that's insulting. (laughs) we got to get you to the front of the queue. Consider it done. I might even come over to Utah and do that. Like uh, I was just saying before we started the podcast, I've been to Utah many, many years ago, but uh, it gets cold there, man. It gets cold there. Yeah, but the sun is shining, so it's not like a Minnesota-Michigan cold. It's a legit, you know, still fun outdoors cold. So who's Scott Miller? Why are you equipped to educate business leaders? What's the deal? Sure. So uh, I live in Salt Lake City, Utah with my wife and three sons. I was an executive officer of the Franklin Covey Company, the world's largest and most trusted leadership firm, of course, founded by the iconic thought leader and author Stephen R. Covey of the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People fame. I was his chief marketing officer for 10 years, and I served for 25 years in the company in various roles around the world, including living in Chicago, London, and here in Utah. Uh, Three decades in the leadership development industry, I host the world's largest weekly leadership podcast that hits about 7 million people each Tuesday and Friday. I've authored seven books. I write a column for Inc. Magazine around leadership. I've done a lot of horrible leadership things in my career, so I'm an expert on all the good stuff and the bad stuff. Not horrible as in unethical or immoral, just like, what? Really? So I've written a lot about that. And I've recently written this book called The Ultimate Guide to Great Mentorship because I don't think all leaders make great mentors, and I'm happy to expand on that. I'm from Florida originally, spent four years with the Walt Disney Company. They invited me to leave, which is kind of how they get rid of you at Disney. (laughs) And so where did a single Catholic boy from Orlando move? Well, to Provo, Utah, where all the Catholics were. I'm kidding. There wasn't a single Catholic in Provo, Utah 30 years ago. It's it's, it's Mormon Mormon territory, territory. isn't it? It's been a great run. I'm writing, speaking, and my day job is I actually own a literary speaking and talent agency, and we represent about 200 of the world's most influential authors and leadership experts, so uh, behind the scenes and in the front of the scenes. You mentioned two very important words, um, and I want to know what their interrelationship is, Um, leadership and mentorship. So let's starting with leadership. What is leadership to you? Like at, at, at a business level I'm talking about, not at a personal level, just a business sense. Well, I think leadership is a variety of things. Primarily, it really is having an expertise in relationships. Yes, leadership is about mission, vision, and values, and systems, and structures, and strategies. Check, check, check. But really, I think Great leaders are great relationship experts. They've learned how to develop mutually beneficial relationships, and that requires leaders to achieve results with and through other people. Can you get work done with and through other people? Coaching, mentoring, being patient, listening, giving people feedback on their blind spots, clarifying the strategy. But I'm pretty passionate about this concept of building a competency as a leader to achieve results with and through other people so you're not the martyr or the victim having to do the work yourself. 
Now, mentorship, I think, is very different than leadership. By the way, I don't think all great leaders are great mentors. Many of the competencies that great leaders have don't translate well. A lot of great leaders have a bias to action. They can peel the onion, get to the root cause, ask piercing questions. Those aren't always great assets to have as a mentor. Mentors need to be more patient. They need to be situationally agile to make sure they understand what the the opportunities, the goals are of their mentee. I think my book was written precisely to help great leaders become great mentors. Can you be both? Of course. I generally advocate to people, don't try to make your leader your mentor. That's an uncomfortable position. Can it happen? Yes. Should it happen? Generally not. Don't make your boss or ask your boss to be your mentor. Find someone else because that same person's job is to terminate you when you're not performing and you don't want to make their job more difficult. It's already difficult enough. So I'm happy to go further into that. But this was a book really meant because I think most mentors are leaders that are conscripted, volunteered or voluntold to become a mentor. It's a side hustle. And I wanted to better equip mentors to understand what are the 13 roles that they often play and sometimes overplay as we know our strengths when overplay can become our weaknesses and that's the 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 gist of a very practical book on mentorship called the ultimate guide to great mentorship i'm a an ambassador for the new south wales police force and um and i was asked by the, the head of organized crime to go and talk to their um, financial crime team um, about this concept of leadership, and and, I got, and I'm not a speaker on leadership, I, and I but I had had to you know take pause and think about what I was going to talk about, and in my thought processes, and I'd like to discuss this with you because this is your territory. Um, one of the things I land or an, an area I landed on was yes, I agree with that. Very good at relationships internally in in a business sense relationships with every part of the business and the people in the business. But what I landed on was this, Scott, is that a leader is someone who can build an idea and reach agreement with everyone in the organisation or everybody who is into that line of report, build a relationship and an agreement with everybody to adopt the idea. Now, it doesn't mean he just has the idea on his own or she, but the idea is something that can be commenced but built up and then have everybody reach an agreement in relation to making that idea become a thing, become something in the business. And that's sort of what I talked about on the day because I've had some experience with, you know, leading businesses, but that's sort of where I landed. Now, I mean, I made that up, to be honest with you. I'm not, I haven't written books about this or anything. But how does that sit with your ideas around leadership? Market sits generally well. I don't think I have any fundamental opposition to it. When you talked about the word agreement, I bristled a little bit because, you know, I don't think it's a democracy. Not everybody has to buy in at the level of the leader. The leader needs to paint a vision. They have to be humble enough to recognize that it will be hard and that they won't understand all the processes and the bureaucracies, that kind of stuff. But I generally would maybe tweak it and say, I, 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 if I was a leader and I was trying to get everybody on board, I would recognize that that's fairly aspirational. Not everyone is going to agree with my strategy. So I might have to identify some people to say, hey, Mark, can I ask you a favor? I'm going to guess you would take a different strategy, but I'm going to ask you not to sabotage me. Or Tina, I'm going to guess this wouldn't be your top priority, but it is mine. And right now I'm responsible. So I'm going to ask you to do your best to support this strategy, not to undermine it, not to trash talk it, and do your best to have an open line to me when you see issues of implementation. I don't want to debate whether we are going to do the strategy, but I'm happy to talk about how. What are the obstacles? How can we achieve success? Because I don't know that it's realistic to think that I'm going to get agreement on a board of directors. You're going to get different levels of agreement, different levels of enthusiasm, different levels of apathy. You know, leaders don't create engagement. We hear about engagement all the time now. Everyone's measuring engagement. It's bunk. Leaders do not create engagement. 
leaders create the conditions for others to choose their own level of engagement, high or low. And so I would see my job really less about trying to get agreement, although that's clearly a goal, and more about creating a transparent and safe environment for people to push back, people to disagree, people to agree, people to challenge me. And then I've built the relationship and the trustworthiness at the end of the day when the door opens, everybody is in support of the strategy, whether that would have been their strategy or not, or whether they're as enthusiastic, minimally, they're not going to undermine it or trash talk it or let others know they might take a different direction. To me, that's a win if I just accomplish that in most cultures. Okay, now let's work out the strategy because yeah. the strategy we're not all going to agree on. How we execute, that's a different matter. But let's agree the very basic fundamentals because I see this in all sorts of businesses. Most businesses don't, when they talk to employees, don't sit and say, what the hell are we here for? You know, why are we really doing all this and busting our ass? What are we doing this for? What's the fundamental thing we're delivering to our, our audience and our community? Is that an important thing? And sometimes you call, people call this, this, what is our why and what is our purpose, all that sort of stuff. But what's the fundamental right that we're trying to deliver into the system? Probably the most important, right, is the why. is because that's where you get people to, to give more than they thought they had. It's where you get creativity and ingenuity and collaboration and vulnerability and genius that comes out. You're absolutely right, is to have people really understand and believe that their contribution connects to the strategy. They know why they're doing this. They have a greater sense of their contribution, that they feel that it's worthwhile. And, and I think now more than ever, Mark, I think post-pandemic, this is not a, you know, a profound statement, but has anybody's values not shifted post-pandemic? I mean, in, a mil- in the U.S., a million people died in the U.S., that COVID is having a little bit of a resurgence right now um, in the U.S. And so I think people's fundamental values have changed. They want to know what they're doing matters. They want them to have find meaning in their job. Their, their, their vocation may not become their avocation. But I think you, you hit on a sweet spot there where a leader's job is to communicate the why behind the what so that people can find a clear connection to their contribution to that and probably keep reinforcing it as it changes, keep communicating that. It can be exhausting. It's why not everyone should be a leader. I'm pretty passionate around not everyone should be an anesthesiologist. Not everybody should be a commercial airline pilot and not everyone should be a leader of people because it's exhausting in terms of clarifying your message, clarifying your purpose, clarifying the why, listening to the challenger and the how. It's a tough job. It's not only establishing a day one and trying to get everyone at least to buy in or at least to understand why your job matters, why what we do matters, where it fits into the broader, the broader, the broader world. But this reinforcing or revising it, revising it because the community's expectations or the community's, what the community looks to for you to in your business to provide, it changes. COVID is a good example. Um, our expectations, community expectations, the buyer's expectations of the service or the product that you sell changes. So what would you say, Scott, like how do you in your work, how do you get leaders to build up processes where they regularly revisit yeah. how this purpose is, why thing has changed? I think it starts with your mindset, your paradigm, your belief system is, you know, are you more concerned with being right or what is right? Are you, are you surveying the landscape? Are you able to check your humility and recognize that all of your insights won't be personally accurate? There'll be emerging trends and demands and stakeholder needs and customer needs that you may or may not find valuable, but someone else is advocating because the constituency is strong or loud enough. It's balancing that with not just you know, agreeing with the last person you talk to in your office because you look like, you know, you don't have any core to va- core commitment to values. I think it's surrounding yourself with people who are smarter than you, recognizing that as a leader, your job is to be a talent magnet, not the genius in the room, but the genius maker of others in the room. And all that really requires a level of kind of a balance of humility and confidence to be able to take stands, set strategy, reinforce strategy and change your mind. 
I mean, changing your mind is a leadership competency, not daily, not after the most charismatic, you know, person you met with that convinced you to change, but to be able to demonstrate and feel confident enough, vulnerable enough to say, hey, I'm learning some new things. These seem like really important trends. Are we addressing these properly? Am I right in thinking this way? I, I think there's a massive change in leader competency around no longer being the omniscient leader. You're not omnipotent. You're not omniscient. You can't see it. You got to surround yourself with people that feel comfortable, confident to come and talk to you. Hey, I have some bad news or I have some different news. Have you thought about this? Are you hearing this? Are we researching this enough? That you're, to quote you earlier, this autocratic style of leadership is gone in the vast majority of organizations because life is short and people want to have meaning in their contribution and they're not working for know-it-alls anymore. A sea change, a sea change in how intolerant competent contributing individuals will or will not tolerate any longer sort of boorish know-it-all leadership. I'd argue, this is 30 years of my career, if someone were to say what is the first job of a leader, I would say recruit and retain talent. Talent that is noticeably, palpably, obviously smarter than you and to check your ego to bring them close to you to constantly advise you on where your time and energy should be spent. Number one, number one role of a leader. Once you've got your competent team, how do you review the competency of the team? In other words, if the market's changed, if the, you know, if the, what you're producing and or selling, your purpose, your, your why, if that's changing as refined, how do you review the people who are executing and delivering it? I can't imagine a world where any leader at any level isn't a voracious reader. That's how you build your vocabulary. That's how you build emotional agility and intellectual agility. It's how you see around corners and anticipate trends and look at what's sustainable and what's sort of, you know, um, a fad or in vogue. It's how you understand what principles of, of the market are enduring versus are changing. So can't imagine a world where every leader isn't a voracious reader. I'm surprised how often on podcast I'm asked what my favorite movies are. And I say, I've watched four movies in my life. Three of them are Austin Powers, and one of them I can't even remember. But I've read 6,000 <laughs> books, and I can tell you probably 4,000 titles. If you want to build your vocabulary, if you want to be relevant, if you want to know what's going on at AI and chat GPT and whether TikTok is rising or falling and all of that and crypto and everything. You got to be reading voraciously magazines, newspapers, blogs, books. So I, yeah, I can't imagine unless I can't imagine a world where your leaders weren't voraciously reading at least one newspaper a day, multiple magazines a week, multiple books a month. It's, it would be a non starter for me. Now to ask your question, answer your question around, your team. The first role of a leader is to recruit and retain talent, talent that is noticeably smarter than you are and keep them, build a culture where they choose to stay. Secondly, you're going to have performance issues. You're going to have character issues. You're going to have competence issues, which is why the second most important role of a leader is to give people feedback on their blind spots. We all have them. Every board has them, every executive team has them, every CEO, we all have blind spots. Some of them may be in our competency, some may be in our personality, communication style, business acumen, you name it. As the leader, your job is to constantly be moving outside of your comfort zone and discussing the undiscussables with your team. This is not only an imperative, not only is this incumbent upon you as a leader, it's a gift you give to your people because the more senior you are in the organization, the less feedback you get. Try giving a senior vice president of sales feedback on her PowerPoint presentation, right? At the last town hall. That's the easiest way to get a career cul-de-sac going on in your own career. No one does it. There's a direct correlation with the higher you up are in an organization and the fewer amounts of feedback you get. You may ask for it, but you aren't going to tell you the truth. They're scared of you. They're cowards. Most people are cowardly 
And that's not a character flaw. That's a personality trait. So I'd argue if you are conflict avoidant, you can't be a leader of people. If you are a bull in a china shop and you have an excess of courage but a deficiency of diplomacy, you can't be a leader. As a leader, you've got to balance courage and consideration and constantly be giving people feedback on their blind spots. Not constantly every hour of every day. Some feedback is reinforcing. Some feedback is redirecting. Some feedback is in private. Some is in public. You have to situationally calibrate when and how you coach and give feedback to people. If you have a performance issue, you have to sit down and call it out in simple terms. Now, I would argue when you do that, you have to first declare your intent. Let's role play. Hey, Mark, thanks for coming in the office today. Hey, Mark, I need to have a high courage conversation with you. And I first, however, want to declare my intent. Mark, my intent is not to embarrass you, to humiliate you. My intent is not to do anything other than to make sure you know exactly where you stand in my assessment of your contribution so that you can make some immediate course corrections. Because I can see a great career for you here if indeed you make some quick pivots. And conversely, I could see an exit from the organization if you don't get on top of the issue I'm going to discuss with you in a moment. My intent is not to railroad you out of here or to diminish you. My intent is to help you see some blind spots that are inhibiting your influence and success in this company. Mark, I'm noticing that. And now I go into the feedback. And so I think it's important to declare your intent because absent facts, people make stuff up. And then your job is to have a precisely accurate conversation with them where you do not confuse facts with your opinions and your feelings and your emotions. Those are different things, and both of them are valuable. But when you're giving feedback to someone in their blind spots or having a performance plan, it needs to be based on fact, not just based on how you would have done it or how you're feeling. Those are important, but when the stakes are high, You've got to make sure you're speaking with a clear voice, giving clear examples, a clear timeline for improvement. And it may be that that situation isn't going to improve. And nine times out of 10, it never gets better, it gets worse. So it may be important for you to execute on it sooner than later. Easy for me to say. I've interviewed thousands of people for jobs. I've hired hundreds of people. And I've also had to terminate dozens of people it never got easier, meaning the situation never solved itself. The only time it's, it improved was when I exercised the courage to have this super uncomfortable conversation, talk straight, be considerate, address the behaviors and the outcomes. It's the only time it ever got better. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. here with Scott Miller and we're talking about, well, we've been talking about all things leadership, but probably the part that I'm really excited about talking about is mentorship. And of course, Scott has released the book called The Ultimate Guide to Great Mentorship. Um, and it's got a, a number of fascinating chapters in there. I want to ask you, Scott, straight up. People always asking me, 
um, would you be my mentor? And uh, of course, I can't be everybody's mentor. It's impossible. But I always take the view is to the view of a mentor is to ask questions, and you, the person who is being asked, is the one who has to give the answer. Um, that's what I think mentorship is. And I, I had an experience here in Australia with a very famous Australian who was where I learned that. Uh, that he he sort of I, he didn't offer to be my mentor. I didn't ask him to be my mentor. He's actually my business partner, but. For me, he played the role of my mentor in that he was always putting to me the tough questions that, and, but never had the answers for me and always kept asking me more and more questions, trying to make me work out the answers because I'm the subject matter expert in the partnership. And uh, so I th- what do you think about that concept that a mentor is not someone who gives you answers but is someone who gives you the questions so that you can find out the answers or, and or? What do you think a mentor is? Well, I think it's situational. It's circumstantial, right? I mean, if you're a if you're a college alumni and you're mentoring a freshman or a sophomore, your strategy is going to change, right? If you're the chairman of the board and you're mentoring an executive vice president, your strategy is going to change. You might be asking more piercing questions. You might be more genteel with someone who's in an underserved population and you're doing this philanthropically through a foundation. So I just think it's important to be aware of what is the circumstance you're in. What does this mentee need? Which of these roles should I be playing? I think the biggest issue, biggest challenge, Mark, that mentors face is they try to live vicariously through their mentee. Well, if I were you, I would do this. You can never do that. You're not them. You don't have their education, their fears, their traumas, their dramas, their passions, their goals. You have a different set of experiences and and education and wealth and and skill set and longevity and successes and failures. I think the, the, the chief role of a mentor is to help your mentee achieve what it is they want to do. Should I be a chiropractor or a florist? Should I be a patent attorney or a orthopedic surgeon? Those are pretty big questions, right? How do I become an executive member of the company? Should I sell this company or should I keep this company? And so to your point earlier, I think the mentor is focused on, let's talk about that. If you did this, what are the ups and downsides with your passions and your timeline and your competencies? If you didn't do it, what would happen? What is the downside? Sounds kind of elementary. But the reason I wrote the book is because these 13 roles, they may seem natural to most mentors, but oftentimes we overplay them. For example, the role of the visionary. This is role number eight. I think most of us would think out of 13 mentor roles. And so I think when most people hear the role visionary, they think of big, bold visions, things you'd never thought of before, creating possibilities that Mark couldn't even imagine. You don't often think of a downside of a visionary. I can think of lots of downsides because if Mark is mentoring me, Mark has had business success that I've never even dreamt of. He has different skills. So sometimes in the role of the visionary, you're creating a vision for what you would do, what you could do, not what your mentee is. I'm often, I'm often um, guilty of this, right? I'll have someone who lives in Miami, Florida, and they've never seen snow. Come on out to Utah. I'll have you skiing black diamonds in two hours. Or someone that, you know, just started a podcast. I said, oh, you want to be a speaker? 7,000 people in a stadium? No problem. I can coach you in two hours. You'll be great. And then I set them up for failure because I painted a vision that was too big for them and their skill set and their courage. And so it's really important to make sure that as a mentor, you're not living vicariously through your mentee. You're assessing their skills their passions, their stretch capabilities, and helping them see a vision, a path forward for what it is they want to accomplish. Not what you should have accomplished when you were them or what you regret not accomplishing. It's a slippery slope that I think happens unconsciously for a lot of mentors. And let's say I'm a mentee. So in other words, I'm a person, I have a a great idea, I've started up, I've, I've kicked it off, I've raised a bit of money, it's going okay, just breaking even, and um, I, you know, I've got half a dozen stuff, and I'm looking for a mentor. How do mentees find a mentor? 
what what should they or do they just go buy your book? I mean, what are they? What, what how do how do how do mentees find people that they sh- who are willing and able to follow them, or do they or do they actually have to find someone to do that? Is there are, are there other ways that they can dial into the mentorship programs? Well, I think there is a lot of answers here. Let me give you four or five. One. If you're in a mid to large size company, no doubt your organization has a mentor program or if they don't, launch one because it's one of the most valuable ways to build a culture of engagement where leaders feel like they're giving back and mentees feel some level of loyalty, kind of not a common thing to the organization. So take advantage of an internal mentorship program if you have one. I'll bet your university has a mentor program. If you went to college or to a university, check with your alumni office, check with your college and see, are they connecting uh, undergraduate students or recent graduates with alumni or vice versa? If you're in a community, I'll bet you there's a not-for-profit. Maybe there's a foundation. Maybe there's a, a country club or any number of informal organizations that have mentoring initiatives. They're all over the place. A lot of local governments will sponsor people like Mark that are seasoned entrepreneurs with young and up and coming, you know, intrapreneurs or or solopreneurs. So just do some research. You're going to find a lot of formal programs. And then I would argue. We have a pro, just just on that, I should just say, we have a program in New South Wales in Australia called the government produces called Business Connect and the government pays uh, mentors to speak to small business owners um, if and when they need it. So and most Australians don't even know about it, but it's a, it's a government program, Business Connect. I'll give you two more examples. One is I also don't think you have to know your mentor. My biggest mentor in life was a guy I never met. He was a radio host that had a financial services podcast back in the olden days, like a radio program, and he died not even knowing I was alive, but I listened to his program every night, Monday through Friday from 6 to 9 p.m. for like nine years Never met the guy. So if you've got an author, a podcaster, a speaker, you can make them your mentor without them even agreeing to it. But let me tell you, everyone's doing the same thing at 945 at night. I don't care if you're Richard Branson, Scott Miller, hardly, Matthew McConaughey, Jamie Diamond, Barack Obama. Everyone's doing the same thing at 945. They're in bed. They're watching their favorite TV program, and they're on their phone checking their Instagram, their Facebook, their Twitter, and their LinkedIn messages, every one of them. Their house might be 80,000 square feet or 8,000 square feet, but they're in bed, and they're winding down, and they're checking their email, and they're winding their day out. Reach out to someone. I mean, the, the... Social media has democratized the connection process. But if you are looking for a mentor, here's what you say. You send Mark, don't send Mark because Mark got 12 today, but you send your mentor a LinkedIn message and you say, hey, Mark, I'm thinking of getting into the mortgage business. I've been watching this for years. And I wonder, would you give me an hour of your time? Just one hour, like literally 59 and a half minutes. I will show up virtually anytime you would like on any platform you want. I'm going to have five or six prescribed questions. I'm going to give them to you in advance. And I promise you, I will not ask you for a job. I will not ask you for an introduction. I will not ask you for a loan or an investment or anything else. I just want to ask you five questions. Mark's going to say yes, because you've set very clear boundaries. One hour, five questions, and then you show up and you have those five questions really clear, you're really prepared, you know all about Mark, and then you let Mark be impressed by you, and then you let Mark say, hey, you know what, Scott? I enjoyed this hour. If you ever need some more time, I'd be happy to give it to you. And you send him a week later and say, Mark, it was so valuable. I want to be cautious. I want to be respectful. Do you think next month I could have 30 minutes? I'm going to bring you five. You get the point, right? Now Mark is thinking this guy is, he respects boundaries. He makes and keeps commitments. There's no um, question creep or you know uh, mission creep. His motive is just to learn. My time is well. And before you know it, Mark's inviting you to his office for lunch to meet some guys. And so, all that is advice is to say if you want to get a uh, a mentor, I-, I can find a mentor in an hour on any topic if I was crafty enough. Because I think when people get when people get to your level of success, they don't want another Porsche. 
They don't need another Tahiti vacation. They want to change lives. They want to give back. They want to invest in people who deserve it and who will actually um, action on it. That's what people like you are looking for. They want a legacy of helping people achieve the next level of success. Am I right? Well, 100%. I'm, and I have this this phrase, pay forward. I like to pay forward what I, I experienced, what I learned, what I was lucky enough to learn. A lot of other people don't get to learn. But what's interesting about what you just said there was one of the parts that was I think is very interesting in the reach out was the part where you said eliminate things out of there. So in other words, say, I'm not looking for a loan. I'm not looking for an investment. I'm not looking for you to give me a job, blah, blah, blah. Because when someone does reach out to me, for example, the first thing I think to myself, oh my God, they're going to ask me for an investment. I don't, you know, they want me to invest in their business uh, or they want, or they want me to uh, give them a loan or they want me to, uh, I don't know, it just, they become reliant. I mean, and I, I get this sense that everybody's going to re- now all of a sudden going to rely on me and I, and I don't have the time or the, but to be honest with you, even the inclination to, to add another reliability, a reliance thing into my world. So I think what you just said was very important. Eliminate all those things that a mentor might be thinking about reasons why they might reject your reach out. Um, and I think that's very, very clever. I, I, can I just, I, you mentioned Matthew McConaughey. You have interviewed Matthew McConaughey about his book. Um, I'm, I mean, I love Matthew McConaughey. I think he's awesome as an actor. Um, and But I don't know much about the dude. Can you just talk to me about his book and what he, what life lessons he was oh, sort yes. of. Obviously, Matthew McConaughey uh, is, a you know, a world-renowned actor, producer, father, husband. He has three children with his wife, Camilla. They live in Texas. He wrote a book called Green Lights, which basically was a kind of autobiography, kind of episodic around his life. He was insanely gracious, a total gentleman, wiser than I expected, delightfully surprised at his uh, life wisdom, business wisdom. And I could not say enough nice things. I've interviewed major celebrities, business titans, and you know, very few of them have been jerks, but there have been some. I cannot say enough nice, gracious things. I've interviewed his wife and I've been interviewing him again. But here's a couple of pieces of advice he gave me. Uh, he just shared. He said he was with somewhere. It might even been, it might even been either in New Zealand or Australia. And he was riding motorcycles across the country. And he said one of his friends gave him a great piece of advice from his uncle. His uncle near his end of his life said, you know, I've basically spent a lifetime worried about problems that never came true, that never happened. And to me, it was very empowering because I tend to be a bit of a worrier. I mean, like I'm a solver. I like to be proactive. I like to anticipate problems. I'm a very prepared person. I don't play checkers. I play chess. And so I don't like to get caught with my pants down. I like to think about contingency planning, maybe sometimes even too much. And I think as a result of that, that creates some anxiety in me because I anticipate the next earthquake or the next, you know, blizzard or the next power outage, not every hour of every day, but I think it actually creates a little bit of anxiety in my kids and my wife. I'm not a nervous Nelly. I just like to be prepared. And so he's, he's actually given me permission to calm down a little bit, right? I'm not a doomsday or I don't have, you know, a thousand pounds of wheat in my garage. I mean, I may have like, you know, five gallons of water in my garage. Right. But he, I think he, um, he takes life seriously enough. It's interesting when I interviewed his wife. Now she was a very successful Brazil, I believe Brazilian um, runway model and entrepreneur long before she met him. They have three children. And I asked her, I said, you know, like do the McConaughey's go to dinner at Applebee's? Applebee's is like a blue collar, middle-class franchise here in America. Right. Um, burgers and that kind of stuff. And I said, it's like, do the Apple, do the McConaughey's go to Applebee's? And she said, we do. It's easier getting in than it is getting out because everyone thinks they know us. And we have to tell our children, they don't know us. They think they know us, but they don't. So be very gracious. And then she went on to say something profound. This came from Matthew McConaughey's wife. She said, you know, as the McConaughey's, we don't seek out conflict, but we also don't avoid it. And also was really valuable to me because he wrote about that in his book about the role conflict plays. 
I think too much in my life, I have sought out conflict. I'm not afraid of it. It doesn't concern me. Like, I don't avoid it. I'm happy having a high courage conversation, arguing it out. Sometimes I win. Sometimes I lose. But I think I've sought out too much conflict in my life. And I don't want to swing it over to avoidance. I just want to make sure that if I'm presented with conflict, that I don't, I don't shrink in it. But I don't want to be a, a heat-seeking missile. I don't want to be a solution looking for a problem. And sometimes I've done that as a leader, as a spouse, as a parent, as a friend. And so from the McConaughey's, I've learned basically just to chill out a little more. That's pretty honest. I appreciate that. And you've, you've interviewed yeah, lots of well-known people, particularly in, 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 business, in terms of business leaders. Can you put your finger on, say, one common yes. pattern? One, one is, this is going to be underwhelming, but I mean it to be profound. Whether it was Ariana Huffington or Seth Godin or Dan Pink or Liz Wiseman, Deepak Chopra, Damie Jaime, you name it. Four-star generals, Pulitzer Prize-winning authors. I interviewed Jason Derulo last week. He's a songwriter, singer, 110 million social followers. They have an indefatigable work ethic. They're honest to God, not any smarter than you and I. They may have a better degree here or there, but they have a hard work ethic. They're not workaholics. They just work hard. They generally outwork other people. And that's something I have discerned from all of these interviews. They're hard workers. There's no such thing as overnight success. If you actually peel back the onion and you look at McConaughey, you'll say, oh, that was your sixth movie that went big, not your first. Or you look at Seth Godin. Oh, that was your fifth book. No one knows what the first five books you wrote. Or the 30th audition. The fourth restaurant. The third business launch. I think a lot of people confuse the tip of the iceberg. They don't see the decades and decades. Or the hundreds of podcasts. Or the hundreds of episodes. Or all the hard work that went into what looks like overnight success. No such thing. No such thing as overnight success. If there is, it's usually ill-gotten and fleeting. You would, be, you would be inspired and stunned to see how hard these people toiled for decades before you ever learned about them. Secondly, I interviewed a man named Robin Sharma. He, of course, is the author of the book, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. And he wrote a book recently called The Everyday Hero Manifesto. It's the best book I've ever read. The Hero Manifesto from a man named Robin Sharma. This guy has sold tens of millions of books. It cost 180,000 US dollars a day for him to keynote. Top of the game. Doesn't get any bigger than Robin Sharma. In his book, The Everyday Hero Manifesto, he wrote a chapter. He titled it, The Day My Journals Went Missing. Now, he's a very public figure, millions of, of social followers. Someone went into his house and stole his journals. His private, most innermost thoughts, his, 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 his inhibitions, his worries, his fears, his dramas, his trauma. Someone went into his home and stole his journals. But he titled the chapter, The Day My Journals Went Missing. Because it's all about perspective. He says, I don't know why my journals are gone. I don't know if someone took them. I don't know if there was a journal fairy. I don't know, but what am I to learn of this? Nothing I can do about it. I might see them on the internet tomorrow. I might see them published in a book next year. I can't control it. So now how am I going to react to it? And to me, it's really about just calibrating your response to everything, choosing your response, choosing your perspective, how are you going to spend your energy? I love the fact that he titled the chapter, The Day My Journals Went Missing. Not some mother effer stole my journals, right? It's just a mindset that he had. That isn't to say you don't fight back, you don't prosecute. It isn't to say you don't right wrongs or go find who stole your journals. But he's choosing to pick his battles and the way he thinks deliberately and chooses his words carefully 
have a massive impact on his mindset, his belief system, his mood, his energy. I love Robin Sharma. I've never met him. By far my favorite interview. Go buy the book, The Everyday Hero Manifesto. There seems to be an underlying theme here of what we don't talk about much these days in the modern world. It's about virtues, people's virtues. You know, those fine things that people like Aristotle and those people talked about two and a half thousand years ago in, you know, in books and, and, and stories about Homer and the Odyssey and uh, all those sorts of things, the virtues of, of humans about being hard work, for example. I mean, the, the, the ethic of hard work, it's a virtue to be, have that ethic and, and to understand why you have that ethic, why it's good that you're blessed with the ability to work hard and assuming you're doing a right thing, something that's, you know, it's a right purpose, then it's easy to do because you understand it from a different point of view. You, di- you understand it from an ethical or a virtuous point of view or a virtue point of view. And, 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 and even, you know, where you're talking about, you know, that particular chapter of the book, he used a, 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 different, a, a different lot of virtues in order not to get angry and he chose very carefully a, a, about the way he worded it as opposed to not being reactive. So a bit of patience, a number of other virtues are interpreted in that, that particular aspect. How important in terms of leadership and mentorship is a basic understanding or a revision of the importance of virtues within ourselves and within the people that surround us? Well, it's kind of a no-brainer, right? I mean, look at Ryan Holiday writing all these books about the lives of the Stoics and how well all of Ryan Holiday's books are selling. Uh, yes, period. A leader needs to be grounded in principles and have a clearly articulated set of values that align with virtues that are timeless and everlasting and cross cultures and religions and generations and countries and industries. I mean, if you really study the principles that govern human behavior, which is what Dr. Covey did. And he brought them to light in this book that sold 50 million copies, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's life-changing. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about one of our guests, a native Australian, Nick Vujicic, who I'm sure you know of. Nick is a dear friend of mine, lives now in Texas. And Nick, as you know, has no arms and no legs and no hands and no feet. Nick's been in my house on several occasions here in Utah. And Nick has taught me the value of perspective and gratitude. Nick has no hands, no arms. He has no legs. He has no feet. He's dependent physically on other people for everything. And I complain about emptying the dishwasher. I complain about rolling the garbage cans 30 yards down to the curb on a Sunday evening. I complain about getting in my car and going back to the grocery store because I forgot the bananas my wife wanted. Nick Vujicic has had a watershed influence on me being a more grateful person for everything I have in life. Grateful that I had $18, not $36, so I got to fill my gas tank up halfway. Grateful that my boys came home from the basketball game tonight complaining, but they came home. And they weren't kidnapped or hit by a car. And that might seem grandiose, but I think I have become a more patient, less reactive, and more grateful person as a result of listening to all of these people's stories and journeys, surviving airline crashes, being kidnapped and brutally sodomized and raped for a year. Elizabeth Smart, you know, the kidnapping victim from Utah. It has been a very humbling experience to have interviewed these people that oftentimes achieved great things, not because they wanted to, but because they had to, to survive. That's amazing. I mean, I, yeah, it's, uh, I, t- I take a deep breath when I think about what we've talked about today, but when I think about how you have learned from your own experiences, which by the way, at the end of the day, earmarks you as a great mentor or a great leader, because 
in order to, I think in order to be a better leader anyway or a better mentor, you have to have had these experiences and be able, be able to, to, to distill them down into things like gratitude and patience and understanding and uh, empathy and all those other virtuous words. And it's all about basics. And by the way, as you said, these things don't change. These things have been ir- irrespective of the platforms. This stuff has been around since Adam was a boy, way, way, way back. And sometimes we lose track of it. Because those people who I, you talked about before who are at 9.45 looking on their uh, LinkedIn, looking at their emails, looking at all their social media, et cetera, sometimes we lose track of the basic fundamentals of I life, think hourly, things that are important. I think hourly we lose track, right? And, and I think leadership and mentorship perhaps, and maybe you could give me your own reflection on this after I finish, is they're the basic tenets of good leadership and good mentorship, actually having a, a, a thorough understanding of what's important. Yeah, I'd argue to put a fine point on that in agreement. Leaders are in the relationship business. Independent of your of your education or your business acumen or your technical competency, your job is to be able to develop relationships. Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you think you're good at it or not good at it, I'm not sure it's my skill set. I don't think my natural superpower is developing relationships. I'm not a very patient person by nature. I'm a somewhat arrogant person by nature. I'm a generous person. I'm a funny person. I'm a demanding person. I sometimes say the point is I realize as an entrepreneur, my job is to every day become more expert at developing relationships, making and keeping commitments, talking straight, not gossiping, keeping promises, under promising and over delivering just these basic life lessons that really end up making you trustworthy because at the end of the day, you don't get to declare yourself trustworthy. Mark, I'm shocked. I'll be in the audience of thousands of people. Raise your hand if you're trustworthy. Every hand goes up. And I say, no, put your hand down. Who decides if you're trustworthy? Everyone says, yeah, right. The other person, you have to behave yourself into a reputation of being trusted by others to become trustworthy. Being trustworthy is the root of all relationship expertise, listening, not assuming, not interrupting, being more patient than you want to be, than you naturally are. These are all struggles with me, which I've written these books. I usually write my books for me. I don't write them for the reader. I write them for me on things that I need to improve on. And then I go try to find people who are like me that are struggling. And apparently there's quite a few of us out there. Well, Scott Miller, I really appreciate this. I mean, and by the way, when I come over to Utah to do the podcast with you, I'm going to get you to sign oh, your book, you. if you don't mind. We're going to dinner. I'm hosting. I'm paying. <laughs> per- perfect, perfect. Scott, Jeffrey Miller, thanks very much. I've done two chapters of this. I'm going to read the rest of The Ultimate Guide to Great Mentorship. Thanks very much, mate. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. You're a class act. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley. And production assistants, Jonathan Leondis. 